0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Anne. Um, I'm a part of the Connections team and the City Worship team here. Um, and today I'm going to be reading our scripture for us. So we are reading Luke 9, 51 through 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thank you, I wanna challenge us as we go into this season of Lent. Uh, Lent is a time uh, where we challenge ourselves, where we walk with Jesus into the wilderness and to the cross. Uh, Lent is probably a part of the Christian calendar that is most challenging, because how many know you cannot walk with Jesus to the cross and not be challenged in your faith, right? And so I I kinda think of Lent as an opportunity uh, to kinda do a hard reset on things in life too through prayer and fasting. I don't know if you've ever, you had a phone or a computer and it starts off and it's running great, then over time it just begins to slow down, bog down, and like I'm not technologically savvy, so all I know is like turn it off and turn it back on, right? Anybody else there? Or maybe you do like a factory reset to get it back to like the way things were. And I think Lent is a little bit like that. As we look and say, God, what, is, what are the things in my heart that are disordered? What are some things that have kept me from experiencing you and the life that you've called me to live? And when we fast and pray, this is not giving up something in order to earn God's favor or love. This is saying that we, we will walk into discomfort, like this is what we're doing, because we want more of you than we want of anything else. And so we're willing to sacrifice and give something up. And people always say, what, what should I fast? I have no idea. You know, what do you feel like is disordered? What do you feel like is something God's calling you to? Is it some sort of food fast? Is it, uh, this year for me, I'm doing uh, more of a digital fast than I've ever done. I've literally dumbed down my phone to where most of my apps are gone, and no social media apps, no news apps, and let me tell you, social media, I don't mind living out. I don't like living without my news, right? I, I like consume news, and so those are gone, No games are gone, and since Wednesday, I can't tell you how many times that I'll just go pick up my phone out of habit, and then be like, oh no, you know? And so it's disordered, and I'm rewiring things. And and not just what am I giving up, but how am I replacing that with more emphasis on, on what God wants to do? And Lent is a beautiful struggle, amen? It's beautiful because of what God does in and through us through these 40 days, but it is a struggle. And you're inviting the struggle. You're inviting a level of discomfort into your life during Lent, which is bizarre, isn't it? Because everybody does the opposite. Everybody just wants comfort, but you're inviting the struggle because we're saying, God, we want more of you than anything else. We'll journey with you to the cross. In this Lent series, uh, we're going into a series called The Crowds, The Crowds. And in Luke 9, 51, and just read this, it says, Jesus resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem. So you can almost imagine a point in the life and ministry of Jesus where Jesus turns, he looks to Jerusalem, which Jerusalem meant the cross, and he says, that's where I'm going. And then Jesus has all these interactions with the crowds along the way. They're following him, they wanna see the miracles, and the the crowds are are peasants, and farmers, and fishermen, and prostitutes, and tax collectors, and outsiders, and it's more the middle and low class that are just following Jesus from place to place, and they're Israelites, and Galileans, and Judeans, and Gentiles, all mixed together. But there's one question. Ultimately, the crowd is going to have to answer, and it just happens to be the the same question that you and I have to answer uh, as we follow Jesus. Will they stay with Jesus and become his disciples? Will they turn away and desert him? And there's not really any kind of middle ground to this. There's no like half-hearted discipleship to Jesus. Will they follow him to the cross or will they turn away? And how many know the crowds as Jesus gets closer to the cross get smaller and smaller, don't they? Because the calling becomes greater and greater. If you follow Jesus long enough, In this discipleship journey, at some point, Jesus turns around to you, he turns around to the crowds, and he's saying, okay, you followed me for a while, you've discovered who I am, you ate the bread and the fish, and you've seen the miracles, now it's time to decide, what are you going to do with me? You're going to follow me? You're going to leave your life behind? Or are you going to continue in your own way? And we see various types of people and responses to Jesus. This isn't an exhaustive list, but let me give you some examples. Number one, there's some people that are just curious They're inquisitive, they're skeptical even about Jesus, and so they kind of come into the outside of the crowd. When you're skeptical about something, how many know you kind of stand on the outside and you just kind of watch? This is what people do even at City Church all the time. Maybe they've been hurt by the church, maybe they're skeptical, but they're curious, and so they stand on the outside and they watch, and they're like, okay, is is this really a loving community? Is Pastor Matt, does he preach the truth, or is he like a cult leader? You know, all of the things that you're going to ask yourself when you're curious, and I get it. But eventually, how many know you have to move beyond curiosity and the questions, will you enter into the kingdom of God by faith, or will you stand on the outside just peering in? Like my people here that are today, or people in the world that have been hurt by the church, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but you can't stand on the outside and just look in, right? Nicodemus was somebody who was curious in scripture. People in the crowds are curious. Number two, you have people that are outraged. People that push back on anything that threatens their way of life, their power, their understanding. This could be their political position, their power, their positions. Most of the time in the gospels, the people that were outraged were religious leaders, right? Because Jesus put his finger on something that they had built their whole life upon. Where Jesus says, actually, it's not the first who are first, it's the last will be first. Well, how many know if you're first, that ticks you off? Right? If you're the wealthy and you're like, I don't like that. And they they were outraged because Jesus came in a way that didn't fit their paradigm. And the outraged have to ask themselves, will they humble themselves before the cross and surrender their lives or not? Will they continue to live in their pride? Number three, there's those that get excited. People that are just running up to Jesus out of excitement and they get caught up in the moment and the teachings and the miracles and the experience. The rich, young ruler is like this. You remember him in scripture, he runs up. What do I have to do? I'm ready to follow And Jesus puts his finger on the one thing in that young man's life he was unwilling to give up. Because that's what Jesus does out of his love for us. He confronts our idols. He confronts the areas we don't want to surrender. For the excited, here's the question, will their enthusiasm be sustained through all the highs and lows of following Jesus? Are they prepared, have they counted the cost? Because how many know it's not just an up and the right journey when you choose to follow Jesus, amen? There's valleys and suffering. And if you're not prepared for that, then when you get in it, you're going to be like, what's happening? Where are you? Number four, there's those that are just selfish. People in the crowds that are just selfish. They have their own agenda. The gospel is secondary to their own dreams and hopes and aspirations, or they may have a, a thing that they love to promote and that they're passionate about, and they put that above all other things. And Jesus confronts that John chapter six is a hard, hard chapter of the Bible where it says at the end of John chapter six, many of the disciples deserted Jesus and walked away because the teaching was so hard. You know what Jesus does not do? He doesn't take the standard of discipleship and say, here, let me lower it to the point where everybody can just step over. He elevates it to the place where it becomes difficult. Jesus was the worst megachurch pastor in human history. (laughs) He really was. He would bring them to a place and say, you have to choose, you have to choose. Here's the thing about the crowds. The crowds rarely get it right. The crowd rarely leads us to the heart of Jesus. The crowds can get us to change our thinking and behavior. Some of you are gonna find this part, next part really interesting, some of you won't, but I'll be quick with it, those who are like, that's boring, Pastor. I actually read this incredibly fascinating article about the social psychology behind crowds and specifically mob mentalities. Like what happens to somebody when they get into the crowd? They will change their behavior because the crowd is doing something, right? And they did this whole study, especially after the Capitol riot, uh, January 6, 2021, when all this happened, and I wanna give you some examples of this. The first one is deindividuation. De-individu- when people are part of a group, they experience a loss of self-awareness. The second one is identity. When people are part of a group, they can lose their sense of identity or individual identity and adopt a group identity. They actually lose who they are and the things that they value, and they begin to adopt the values of the group or the leader. Emotions. Being a part of a group can lead to heightened emotional states, excitement, anger, hostility. We've all been a part of this because you've probably all been to a sporting event, haven't you? And you get caught up in the moment for your team, and you do things that normally you wouldn't do because you're passionate about that. I grew up in Norman, Oklahoma, and so when I say I'm a Sooner fan, like I was a kid growing up, I was eight years old walking up and down the stands selling Dr. Pepper at eight. People would look at me and be like, do you, you know how to count money? I'm like, yeah, I do, it's $10, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fork it over. I mean, I, I can remember just getting caught up in the moment, like people would start booing certain things, I'm like, I don't know what we're booing about, but I'm gonna do it because everybody else is doing it, you know. You get caught up, you get emotional. You get emotional. Acceptability, behaviors that are often seen as unacceptable become acceptable when others in a group are seen carrying them out. We've all been there, haven't we? Like, does this describe anybody else's middle school, junior high, high school, college life? It's like, I wouldn't normally do this, but I did this because someone else was doing this. As you can probably guess, I was a rule follower growing up. I was kinda by the book, a really good kid. Uh, I wanted everybody to like me, and so I remember my junior, I was a junior in high school, uh, I'm in Miss Rogers' Spanish class. R- Mrs. Rogers didn't show up that day, but you don't go and tell somebody that your teacher's not there, because then you'll have to do work. You just sit there, and nobody knows. And so we're all sitting there, and I had practice that afternoon. I had things all night, so I'm like, I'm gonna knock my homework out now so I can do it later, because that's how I rolled back in the day. Very responsible. And all my buddies, and a lot of my buddies on the football team were in that class, and I remember they moved all of the desks out of the way so they could have a football game in the middle of the, uh, of the room. And they're like, you know, they were like, Matt, join in. I'm like, no, nah, I gotta finish my homework, I got practice tonight, all these kind of things. I'm like, so I just like didn't even mess with them and they're being idiots like you expect and all these kind of things. Then the very end of the class, they were like, no, you've gotta play, jump in with us, jump in with us. I'm like, fine. I stand up, there's like five minutes left in this class. I stand up, I'm quarterback. I throw the football in the classroom to my friend Ryan. Ryan was the starting wide receiver on the Moore High School football team. He went in to start at a Division II college as a wide receiver. The ball goes right through his hands, like he'd never caught a ball in his life. It hits this plate on the wall Miss Rogers had got on some kind of adventure she went to in Europe, and the plate falls on the ground, shatters into a 1,000 pieces, right? The door opens, the principal walks in. Who just did that to that plate? And everybody's like, that guy. <laughs> that guy. One of my kids came home the other day and they're like, I got in trouble and I didn't even do anything. I was just with all these other people who were being idiots and I'm like, let me tell you a story <laughs> about dad. I got detention for a week for that and I played one play, right? But how many know you'll do things when other idiots are doing things because you get caught up in it? How about anonymity? People feel Anonymous within a larger group, which reduces their sense of responsibility and accountability. Like, Pastor, why are you telling us this? Because this is the effect of the crowds. And this is the same mob mentality that put Jesus on the cross. And we don't think about the crowds following him were the same crowds uh, when when it came to Palm Sunday who were waving branches and singing Hosanna, but then they were disappointed because Jesus didn't show up like they wanted to and he didn't lead a revolution and he didn't overcome the Roman army. And so maybe it was probably the same people that said, crucify him, crucify him. That's not what we wanted. The kingdom he's bringing is not the kingdom that we had in mind. How many know there's a fine line sometimes between the two? Greg Moore says this, crowds have the power to make the timid brave, the good better, or the bad devastating. Crowds have the power of good, but often they make the bad devastating. I've always been, I, I love history, I love World War II history, I love even reading about how the church uh, operated in such a difficult context when the, the Nazi power and Hitler was rising up, and you know, most of the time in our lives we don't have to face this, this kind of understanding, if I stand up, I'll lose my life. What do you do in that context? How many know that's when your faith gets real? Some of you know I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor theologian who led the underground church in Germany, trained uh, pastors and leaders, and ultimately at 39 years old uh, in a concentration camp, lost his life honestly just days before the allied army would invade and, and release most of the prisoners. The story of Franz Jagerstatter. Anybody know Franz Jagerstatter, an Austrian farmer? who in the face of everybody just joining the the Nazi party, because uh, that's what everybody in his territory did, and when you joined, you signed an oath to the Nazi party, and he said, no, I'm not gonna do it. And his priest and his family and all of his friends said, you're an idiot, just sign it. It doesn't matter what you believe, just sign it, and then you can live however you wanna live, and he refused. He said, I can't go against what I believe. I can't sell myself. I don't know if anybody's ever seen the movie on his life called A Hidden Life. Anybody ever seen A Hidden Life? One of the most amazing movies i ever made. In fact, I watched it again yesterday. It's that amazing. It's three hours long, all right? So know what you're getting into. But a story of somebody you never, never knew his name. A hidden life. Someone who lived behind the scenes. A man of integrity who loved God dearly. At 36 years old, he was beheaded in a German prison camp because he wouldn't sign the oath. A man named August Landmesser. Nobody knows August. He was expelled from the Nazi party because he had married a Jewish woman and one day Hitler comes to town and is doing uh, this speech to all of these factory workers and at the end of his speech you, like everybody else, would hail Hitler and and pledge your allegiance to him and everything else except August Landmaster that day said, I'm not going to do it. And most people never knew his story but the picture of him actually was released later. We have a picture of it. Here he is. Doesn't seem like much in the moment But his refusal to salute only only lasted a few seconds, but it gave many the power and the courage not to conform to the crowd and what everybody was doing out of fear. How many know it's easy for us just to conform to the crowd, to go along with the flow? The crowd rarely leads us to the heart of Jesus. A crowd will rarely lead us to truth. In Luke chapter nine that we just read, we get three instances that Jesus gives us of counting the cost, Counting the cost. And remember, these are people that from the crowd had decided, Jesus, we'll follow you. We wanna be disciples. Wherever you go, we'll go. And again, Jesus doesn't lower the bar of discipleship to say, okay, anybody and everybody. He raises it out of his love for us. He raises it. The first man says this, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, okay, but I just want you to know the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Like foxes have holes and birds have nests, but not the Son of Man. This is really a powerful statement because if you get this, this, that we just read before, Jesus and his disciples went into Samaria where they were rejected. The Samaritans rejected him. Jesus is making a statement on this road to discipleship, if you choose to follow me, how many of you will be rejected by the world at times? They're not gonna understand. Jesus uses the phrase son of man. The son of man, that term speaks to the humiliation and rejection that must be suffered by this man who is destined for glory. In this specific instance, Jesus addresses the gods of both comfort and clarity. How many know we love our comfort, don't we? I do. We love our clarity, don't we? And Jesus addresses that here. If if comfort and clarity is your God, you won't follow me into complete discipleship. In fact, discipleship is this, it is knowingly choosing a road that we wouldn't have chosen ourselves. I want you to think about that for a second. Discipleship to Jesus is choosing a road you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. But most of us have some sort of ideology of the American dream, don't we? And we don't wanna lay that aside. And our goal is to raise like, really successful kids or to get this or that or retire and just take it easy. And are we willing to lay down our idols to follow Jesus? The second instance, Jesus says, follow me. To which the man replies, let me bury my father. Jesus replies to that, let the dead bury their own dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. Anybody else in the room that sounds a little bit harsh? Yeah? Can we be honest this morning? Is anybody else that that just always kind of seemed a little bit harsh? If you think that sounds harsh to us today in 2024, let me tell you, it was 100 times more difficult for a Jew in the first century. Because you had an obligation to take care of your parents in their elder age, and you had a responsibility to make sure in their death that you took care of them and honored them. So do you think Jesus picked this example for a reason? If we're literally translating this from the Greek, it's let those who are spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Jesus is not making a statement that you and I can't throw a funeral for our parents. He's saying this, there is no excuse greater than serving the kingdom of God. There's always a reason why you can't. There's always an excuse, but you, if you are living in the kingdom of God, the time is right now. Oh, it's not the perfect season in life for you? Great, your answer is yes to Jesus. Oh, you, you think you can do it later or another time? You cannot be a disciple of Jesus with a tomorrow mindset. It doesn't work that way. You can't be a disciple of Jesus with good intentions. Discipleship is yes of obedience where I am. What has God called me to do right now? what Jesus is getting to. Those who make excuses are the spiritually dead. They're not experiencing life in the kingdom. But the best excuses fall short. They fall short. Right here, Jesus addresses the God of misdirected priorities. Misdirected priorities. And when you look at your life and your time and your attention and the things that you do, are they reflective of somebody who said, Jesus, here's everything? Were they reflective of somebody who is living their own life and trying to add Jesus to it along the way? Welcome to our Lent series, ladies and gentlemen. Lent is hard. The last one is this, I'll follow you, but let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, nobody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Right here, Jesus addresses the God of gods of convenience and partial surrender convenience, I want discipleship, but I want it on my timeline and my ways. Well, guess what? Discipleship is choosing a path you wouldn't have normally chosen for yourself. And partial surrender to Jesus is not a thing. He said no one puts his his hand to the plow and looks back. What is Jesus saying? There's no over-the-shoulder discipleship to Jesus. You can't be moving forward into the kingdom of God and be looking back and thinking, oh, look what I missed. Look what I'm giving up. Oh, the good old days when I could just live however I wanted to, or or maybe if I say yes to Jesus, I'm going to miss out on this or that. He said, that's not discipleship to Jesus. Why is that? You will reject the call to discipleship if you believe there is anything more valuable than Jesus and his kingdom. You will inevitably say no to the call of Christ if there is anything in your heart that you elevate above his kingdom. That's why Jesus told those two parables, if you remember, they're really short, about a treasure in a field and a pearl of great price. Anybody remember those stories? He said, what happens when you find a treasure in a field? He said, you go, you go sell everything you have to buy the field because the treasure is so great and so amazing, you will never regret selling everything to get it. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom. You don't look back over your shoulder and regret moving towards the kingdom because the kingdom is so great and so amazing and it's so exciting and full of joy, there's never a moment of regret for what's been left behind. This is what Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, theologian, he says in the church today, we have a lot of admirers but very few followers. He said it's full of people that admire Jesus, love his teaching, seek to implement it into certain parts of their lives, but with followers, it's complete abandonment. Years ago, I preached a message here at City Church called The Elephant in the Church. Uh, I'm sure all of you remember it because it was so powerful and amazing that you, know, you never forget those really. The elephant in the church today. And I said the elephant in the church today is non-discipleship to Jesus. Non-discipleship. That we can stay as just admirers, that we can fill our life with a few spiritual things and we can continue just to operate in a way where we give him partial surrender. But Jesus never shows us that in the Bible. Jesus never lowers the standard of discipleship, he continues to raise it, why? I've said this many times, out of his love and goodness for us, you're like it doesn't sound like love and goodness, he would not be a good loving father if he allowed you to to, to persist in your rebellion and sin and idolatry. He loves you because he knows any idol in your life will not give you life, it will keep you from life. And so he raises the bar to say, nope, this is no half-hearted, half-in, half-out. You have to abandon all things to come and follow me. It's everything. Let me give us three quick things, what we must consider if we choose to take up our cross and walk the road of discipleship during this Lenten season. Number one, Jesus demands unqualified commitment. Unqualified. There's no excuses. There's no reasons. And guess what? I'm no different from you. You can say yes in one season of your life and then get to a place where you're like, I don't know if I wanna say yes in this season. I just really like where I'm at. Unqualified commitment. A radical shift in priorities in your time and your resources. Number two, Jesus clarifies our relationship with the world. This one's hard for a lot of people because you wanna be liked, you wanna be popular, you wanna walk in the room, and you wanna feel like the crowd is is with me. Can I just tell you this? Today, as a follower of Jesus, if you walk in a room and everybody's believing exactly what you believe and you're aligned with them, something's probably wrong. Something's probably wrong. Because Jesus calls you an alien and a stranger. If you walk around in this world and you're like, this does not feel like home, guess what? You're probably in the right place, because this is not our home we're aliens and strangers. That means when we elevate the kingdom of God and King Jesus to the highest level, we submit ourselves under his rule and reign. The parts of your life that are convenient and easy to do that, and the parts you're like, I would rather do anything but that. And you're not the most popular in the room. People don't get why you value certain things, why you live that way, why you do that. The third one is this, Jesus urges us to count the cost. Of discipleship. Jesus tells a story. He said, If you build a house, aren't you going to count the cost before you start building it to make sure you can finish it? You don't just start building and, like, halfway through, you're like, Man, we're out of supplies, out of money. Oh, well. This is a way of Jesus saying, When you say yes to me, you're saying yes to the greatest adventure of joy, of purpose, of contentment. You're also saying yes to suffering and difficulty. You're not saying yes to comfort. You're saying yes to both of those things simultaneously and Jesus makes that very clear. So you count the cost. Have you counted the cost of your baptism? For you and I who have been baptized in water, our baptism, when we go down under the water, we are literally becoming a martyr for Christ. Whatever you say, Jesus, the answer is yes. Just let me know what the question is. Sometimes we just do our baptism now, like the great moment, and it's fun. No, it is your death. You are leaving your life behind to follow in the ways of Jesus. It signifies a change in allegiance. My good friend, uh, Dave Robbins, works for Voice of the Martyrs in Bartlesville. Uh, Dave does not attend City Church, but he listens to like every one of our messages. So Dave, if you listen to this, I love you, buddy. Grateful for you, I'm sorry, I had to cancel lunch last time. Lunch is on me this time, Um, let's reschedule. Dave is a missions guy. He spent a lot of time overseas. He came into the staff chapel not long ago and something he said with me is just so deeply resonated. He said, I go overseas, I meet with pastors, people, he said, they are so low on knowledge. Some of them had just come to know Jesus. They don't really even have their theology and all this stuff put together. He said, but they are so high in obedience. He's like, you'll meet these guys, and because of their yes to Jesus, them and their, their families will be put in these situations where like, they very well could lose their life. And they'll look at you and say, I was just baptized into water, which means my life is not on my own. So whatever it means, yes to Jesus, I'll go down that road. I'll do it. Then Dave said, I get back here to the church in the West, to the American church. He said, we're so high on knowledge. We have all of the sermons and the books and the podcasts. We really hope you listen to our podcast. It's good. All of the information, Bible studies, so high on knowledge, but so, so low on obedience. We have everything that you think you need, and yet, we're low on obedience. I've done this once before, but I was thinking this week about this. This is every sermon I've ever preached as lead pastor at City Church. There's like 550 sermons in there. It's like 20,000 hours of my life, guys. It's been a lot. I preached my first message here at City Church when I was 24 years old. There's a few of you that had to listen to that and I'm so sorry. (laughs) Rotons, you guys were here for that. Handful, you know, that are here for that. All the way back to 2010, I was 24, almost 25. I'm 39 now, about to turn 40. All the sermon series we've ever done, God and culture, what are these sermons? Center, Encounters with Jesus. Here's an Advent series. I mean, guys, this thing is, I'm telling you, I don't know what you what 550 sermons look like. Book of Hosea, sermon series called Redo. We used to actually have information guides back in the day. Like every day, we would, every Sunday we would print this off. How, how cool does that look? It was like your bulletin, you know? It's great. Now we don't do that, thank God. <laughs> series called Core, this is, the great adventure we went through the book of Acts together. That was a good one. There was a time at City Church we tried to be a little bit trendy, then we outgrew that. and we We're like, no. Summer vacation, book of Galatians. I mean, a lot. Rooted, Orphan Sunday. It's a, it, it's, it's a lot. 550 sermons is a lot. We'll grab some of these real quick. Oh, you don't have to give me a hand for that. Most of you weren't here to listen to it anyway. Wonder Life, Freeway. Someday, Whispers, that was an Advent series, lots of sermons. You're like, why do I do this? We can be high on knowledge and low in obedience. And I think sometimes we're like, we're one sermon away from our life changing and I'm like, I don't don't know if you are. I don't know if you're one podcast away or book away. I love that we gather every Sunday to do this I think there's a point in the gathered community of Christ coming together to lift up the name of Jesus, the word of God, and to come to the table. Don't get me wrong on that. But you can do that every day of your life and not be a disciple of Jesus. Not be a disciple of Jesus. And I think sometimes what we don't need is just another message, not another sermon or podcast or book or resource. I think we have to ask ourselves the question, do I believe that fellowship with Jesus and life in his kingdom is worth giving everything for? I I think the church has struggled through this at times and I'm not blaming everybody else. We have the same struggle, but you know what we can do? We can take that standard and bar of discipleship and because we want to fill our rooms and our churches with as many people as possible, we lower it and we say, here, everybody, just come step over it and it's fine if you never say yes to Jesus, just keep coming. I don't find anywhere where Jesus did that. I want to create a place where people can come and discover Jesus and if you're skeptical and you need to sit and you need to discover him, do that. But if you follow Jesus long enough, What does he do? Hey, you ate the bread and the fish. You saw the miracles, you listened to the teaching. Who do you say that I am? Come and follow me. Come and walk into this life that's greater than any life you've ever experienced. And we always think that we're the right people in the crowd, don't we? But June 23rd, 1998, when I said yes to Jesus, Do you know that today I still have to say yes to Jesus and I've preached 550 something sermons but I still have to say yes because comfort and convenience and the idols, they wanna say, man, they creep in, don't they? What does yes to the kingdom of God look like? What does obedience to Jesus look like? What What am I holding back? Is there an excuse that I've made? Am I chasing some American dream or climbing the ladder of success or trying to raise really successful kids or filling my life with ever comfort? Those aren't necessarily bad things, but those are not the center of the kingdom of God and what it means to follow him. If you would this morning, stand to your feet with me. Close your eyes with me just for a second as we allow the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts to speak, to draw. This is a difficult message this morning. I I get that. But again, I go back to this. The radical message of Jesus to surrender our lives is the most loving and graceful thing that he could do for us. That he's calling you out of your idolatry to the things of this world. He's calling you out of your comfort, Maybe you came and you've got a little bit of religion. You've been hurt. You're skeptical. saying, come follow me. Come and lose your life in order to find it. Take up your cross with me. Carry your cross with me as I go to Jerusalem. Holy Spirit, we just ask right now that you would do what only you can do. And I I just, I know myself included, there's so many times we can find excuses of why we can't now in this season. But God, you are the treasure in the field. You are the pearl of great price. You, You are worth leaving it all behind. So we surrender it to you today. We give it to you, Father. We give it to you. If you would, just prepare your hearts as we're gonna come to the table.